This is O Ship, the show where experts and leaders look back at their biggest moments of failure just so you can avoid making them. And there is no one better to squeeze the naked truth out of our charismatic guests than your host, Chameleon Collective Founding Partner, Freddie Laker. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another week of O Ship. This week, I've got a friend and colleague, Jeff Brecker, uh, joining us. Uh, I met Jeff when he worked with me at Chameleon Collective, but he's got an incredible background in the professional services business. And I felt that he would be the, the perfect person to have a great chat about what it takes to build a successful professional service agency. You know, I've, I've talked about a lot of different fields that I've, I've worked in over the years uh, on the show with O'Ship, but you know, haven't really leaned in uh, to the very interesting and very challenging world of building a professional services business. Now, in in uh, my world, in Jeff's world, this could be everything from a you know a, a marketing agency, a digital agency, a digital production shop, a consulting firm, a recruiting firm. But obviously, professional services comply to any industries from legal to financial and engineering and everything in between. The reality is there when you when you set these things up, it can be quite easy to get into the business get a couple of smart people, bring them together and find something that, that clients want to buy from you. But I find that as easy as they may be to start, they're uh, even uh, harder to be successful, but very easy to fail uh, spectacularly. So when we lean in chatting with Jeff today, we've got a guy who was the SVP and managing director of RGA Chicago. He was the managing director of Digital Kitchen. He was an SVP at Leo Burnett. He was the uh, partner and director of interactive production at Ogilvy at one point. I think he was even in, even at Tribal DDB. And, and then most recently, he's become the managing director of Envoy, which is a, a really top class experience shop uh, based in Chicago. So I think he is the perfect person to dig in deep around what's going to make or break a professional service company. And with that, here we go with another week of O-Ship. Jeff, welcome to O-Ship. Thank you for having me. I feel honored. Uh, that was a pretty uh, intense lead up. Uh, you know, yeah. I, 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 <laughs> And, you know, I feel like I'm so old, I forget some of those things that I've done, but uh, I appreciate I, I, it. I could be your hype man. I could fall around with you. If I had an instrument, I could play like a little horn or like, like, like theme music for you in places. I like it. I like it. I mean, uh, I was actually thinking of, thinking of myself as I was introducing you. And again, you're amazing, amazing background. And, uh, you know, and I've done, done a couple of things over the years. And and right now I have my, my in-laws uh, visiting and one of my primary skills, I'm not sure my, my, my parents and in-laws know exactly what I do. I think my primary skill right now is uh, I print documents because no one in the, no one in the building knows how to use uh, any kind of technology. So with my family, I'm like the tech support guy. Uh, and I was wondering if, I'm not sure still to this day, anyone in my family can describe what I do. Did your family know what you do? It's funny. For, <laughs> for about 10 or 15 years, uh, my parents would describe my job as working with computers. Nice. Um, I don't. Uh, I don't. <laughs> I don't really understand what that means. But I guess. I guess that's what I do. So when people ask me what I do for a living, I tell them I work with computers, and uh, nice, that's pretty, nice. pretty much it. I think. I think they've worked out. I'm at least connected to to marketing and and, uh, and sales at some point. So that's good. So we're moving in the right direction. This fulfills a lifelong ambition of mine because apparently when I was five, I told my parents that I wanted when I when everyone else said, "What do you want to be? A fireman, a policeman, you know, astronaut?" I wanted to be a quote unquote businessman. Um, was when I was telling people when I was five. So I guess I'm, I'm, I've, I've, I've fulfilled that generic dream. <laughs> it's, 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 better, it's better than me. I mean, p- people ask me what I wanted to be, and I literally said Indiana Jones. I mean, In I fairness, went, it, would have been, I mean, it would have been pretty awesome to be Indiana yeah, Jones. I, I agree. I mean, I went to college. I was an anthropology, archaeology major when I got to Wisconsin. Yeah. And then I realized that Indiana Jones was just a movie, and it would, I, would never, I would never have the whip and the gun and traveling to Egypt and looking for the Ark of the Covenant. Very sad. You, so I decided, you, you, what's the next best thing? Let's get an advert. Let's, let's become a, go into advertising. That's close perfect. enough. It would be great yeah. fun though if you could convince people that Indiana Jones was a documentary. I'm just saying. I know. I agree. <laughs> I agree. 
So, so, so Jeff, there's, there's so much stuff that we can, we can talk about here. Uh, you know, I think, um, before we dig into any of that, you know, I obviously talked a, uh, quite a bit about some of the roles you've had, but can you, can you describe a little bit more around, you know, just, just your, your background and, and, you know, kind of maybe your evolution, how you, how you sure. come up through this professional services world? So when I was, I guess, 13, I got a modem. Nice. For my for my for my bar mitzvah, and I got online and I got obsessed with it was CompuServe at the time, but I was like obsessed with what the internet could actually do and what it could deliver, communicating with people around the world, finding uh, documents, weather, movies, everything. And then when I got to college, uh, I put our college newspaper uh, online, I hand coded in HTML, and then when I left college, I started in the uh, internet startup world, working at a bunch of web development shops. Um, until luckily I got a call from uh, DDB in New York to help them uh, start their uh, their DDB Digital. And you mentioned, you, you alluded to Tribal, it was DDB Digital. They didn't really even have it. And I went to New York and worked for them there and then and in Chicago as well. Uh, ended up then moving over to Leo Burnett where I worked for. It was chemistry and then iLeo and then ARC and then now it's just Leo Burnett. <laughs> These, uh, these agencies certainly specialized in rebranding themselves every two years, if nothing else. So. Yeah, I mean, exactly right. Like so, and then I ended up going to moving back to New York, going to Ogilvy Interactive, both in Chicago, in New York, and then in Chicago. Got pulled back into Burnett, but I think there was uh, a, a guy, Sunil Radia, who you had on your show, called me. He's like, "We're doing something special," so it suckered me back to, to Burnett for uh, three years or so. Then had the opportunity to run a company called Digital Kitchen. And it was my first foray saying, you know what, I'm going to leave the large scale agency where I've been working within like a, you know, as like a, a, like a step, like, like a stepchild doing digital work and basically running an independent production shop that was doing like high end Hollywood work where I was lucky enough to get to help uh, launch the Cosmopolitan of Las Vegas. So we did all the all the content and branding for them I ended up winning a grand prix at can for that work, which was, I was very, very proud of. Um, and then Bob Greenberg calls. And when Bob Greenberg calls, you answer the phone. And then when yeah. he says, uh, I want you to run my Chicago office, you say yes. And then he brings you and you talk to Nick law and Barry and the whole team. And you're like, whatever, you, whatever you want. Um, I've yeah. been following you my entire life. Um, yeah. from all the movies you've ever made to changing the way that people go online to building things like the Nike fuel band and beats music. I was like, I'm all in. So I yeah. uh, did that for about seven years. So it was, it was great. And, 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 so, and, and just to set again, tone, we're talking about groups that could be, you know, a hundred people to, you know, hundreds or you know, maybe in some cases even approaching a thousand or more people. Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, so, so the, and these, and, and when you build these groups out, it's very interesting. RGA had a very interesting um, approach and they actually started doing groups within the larger New York office because they realized they were getting so large, they had to actually pull it into different, almost like mini offices within their New York office. Mm -hmm. So for us in Chicago, we went from about 11 people to almost a hundred. So we had basically a built out group. Um, like they have in New York here with all, all every, every type of offering that the, that the agency had. So, so awesome. uh, I think, I think we, we got a home run on kind of establishing serious credibility on this front. So now with that, uh, away, we, away we go to speak. So, sure. uh, you know, it's O ship. So I love, uh, I love hearing about, you know, things gone wrong. We're going to save your O ship story for a moment, but uh, from now, but I, I'd love to get a sense of, what, what's your take on the the easiest way to fail as a, as an agency? How do, how do people? What's the, what, where do you see people go wrong the fastest? For me, I think the the, the easiest way for fails were for people to think that prior success is a roadmap for future success, mm. when in fact it is the complete that. opposite. Right? Like everything that you've done and you've succeeded in the past has completely changed. It used to be it used to take you know decades and then years. Now it's months, almost days and weeks. So uh, things that were working previously don't necessarily work the same in the future. How much all. is how much is that impacted in your opinion by 
the the size of of the company. So like, does that does that rule apply? Change like as you as you start to scale? I have an opinion on this, but I'd love to get get yours. I I, do, I think I think some of the larger, more traditional plays into this understand that, uh, and while it might seem easier for them to do that, it's significantly more difficult especially when you have large-scale operational processes that are built into how people are working, how P&Ls are set, um, how the creative teams are built, um, and understanding that there's past histories that need to really think about new ways of approaching and solving clients' problems. And when you're in a service business, you know, you're, you're, you're basically, what you're selling are people's ideas and approaches and processes to how they're going to deliver value to those clients, consumers. And the more people you have, the more diversity you have into it, which is great. But it also, you also sometimes have more rigor because they have to figure out ways to manage those large groups of people. In the smaller areas, you might be more nimble and you can make changes more rapidly, but you don't have the larger diversity of thinking that attacks those problems. Yeah, it's it's one thing you know you can scale a, a product business when it's uh, you know it doesn't involve humans, but at the second the human element comes in, there's all these dynamics that you you, know, you can't program your way around, you can't uh, engineer your way around. Um, I guess there's social engineering. So one of the things that uh, quotes has, has always had a huge impact on me uh, since the first time I heard it was uh, quoted from from Ogilvy in one of the books about him as saying, you know, how big can you get before you get bad? And, you know, in, in your experience, uh, and I know it's not totally prescriptive, but where, where do you think people need to start reflecting around, you know, the, the maybe how to opt, you know, think, rethink their company at, at different sizes? Is there, is there points where you feel like the, the kind of vibe changes a little bit and you have to think about the organization differently? It's, it's interesting. It's, I've been at multiple different sized companies and I've seen mm-hmm. them grow. I think the key, the the, diff, the main differentiator that happens is really when the size becomes around fifty people, you then start needing to hire managers and almost middle managers to manage the amount of work that are flowing into the agency to keep it profitable. So when you have that specific level of of size at fifty, it it becomes, you need to step it up and your leaders need to be figure out how they're able to distribute their work and their thinking and start growing the teams underneath them versus act, actively working on project-based work. And then when you get to around 100, more than likely what you're doing is you're scaling up capabilities to figure out how to bring and grow the relationships with your clients. So in the, in the past, you might be a design company or a digital company. Now, all of a sudden, you're bringing in production, actual content production. You're bringing in media buying, actual media buying. What does that look like? And then you're able to scale. Once you get above 100, then you start needing to think about how are you how are you carving it up into groups and then putting mini leaders on top of that. Yeah. One of the things I think is really uh, interesting, there's like the operational side of scaling, but there's I'm a bit of a, a culture now, as, as you know, and I think that um, the, the cultural scaling gets particularly hard around 100 people. And I think a lot of that just you get to this point where you don't know everyone. And I think at the, and when you're in these boutiques and smaller shops with this consulting from a creative uh, agency, um, you know, you, you, in the earlier stages, you know everyone. So people talk a lot about like that, that feels like family kind of thing. But there's another side of it that, that I think is more, uh, you know, l- less clear than, let's say, that you know, feels like family vibe. And I think it comes down to, to trust. And I think when you're at a smaller group, you trust uh, you trust all the people in the company because you know them. You said, I've worked in them. I've experienced them. I know them. My reputation, I think they're going to be great. But when you start getting to hundreds or even multiple hundreds of people, at that point, the members of the, the, the group, the, the, the people on your team, they have to start trusting the system versus trusting each other. And that's a really interesting thing to, to, to build into a professional services company, whether that's training or uh, a belief system. So having people really are really aligned around the same set of cultural values, or again, making sure that they know that the recruiting process is really hard to, you know, so that people know that they're really good talent there. Because at some point you start having to giving, giving parts of your work to someone you've never met before. And that's really scary. And it can really, fr- and, and then if it fails, 
it really frees at the culture of the company, in my opinion, because people are like, oh, I don't know if I want, you know, especially if you're a, a very craft oriented company, like you've worked in many times where it's like, you know, you're, you're, you're dropping A grade stuff all day long and someone, you know, drops the ball in the line, then you start wondering if you want to be there and it can really fray at, at, at the core of the company. I agree. It also, it also comes down to a true understanding of what your offering is. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot, it's interesting. Um, I remember at one point, Bob Greenberg would go and he would ask people even in the elevators, what does RGA do? And he kept on getting different responses mm-hmm. to those answers, depending on who he spoke to. And I think that's okay because there were, you know, 20 different offerings. They had a venture arm, they had consulting, they had all these different things, but ultimately how you're working and what you're looking to deliver and rallying teams around that is core. Because if you don't have that North star, people can get lost and they, and they, they really can't be held to specific, as you're saying, um, you know, a level creative or thinking, which is, which is super interesting. But what I, what I love though, is even as we grow larger, technology has really changed the game. Um, if there's with, with, the, with how the pandemic has really forced us to not be in an office, how we engage with each other, whether it's a five person shop, a hundred person shop, a thousand person shop, we now have the ability to connect in a much different level and actually work cross region, uh, cross office in large groups, which is, I, I think is, is a pretty, a pretty positive thing. Yeah, I'm actually, uh, I definitely want to uh, jump into that a bit more. And uh, briefly, I do want to acknowledge for, for those of you who maybe don't come from the marketing and creative services world, uh, Bob Greenberg is the founder of RGA. He is a uh, absolute legend in the industry. He's, kind of, he's also kind of a, a quirky guy, respectfully. And I think if, you, if I was in the elevator and he was my boss and he turned to me and the founder of any company suddenly pop questions you, what do we do? I think I would mildly crap my pants a little bit. Like, is this an employment test? Imagine it's like Steve Jobs just randomly turning to an employee in the lift and going, what do we do? This is a, it'd be, it could be a little intimidating, I guess, but it's actually pretty cool uh, as well as a leader that, that, uh, that, that he was checking the pulse of that. So I'm sure that uh, I'd probably get you know, multiple answers about Camillion Collective as well. So uh, very, 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 very interesting. So, you you've worked across a lot of different parts of the industry. You've you know you've been on the agency side. Uh, you've done I, I think things with full more on the, the consulting side. You've also built things that are in the in house side of it. So you've been a CMO before. I actually didn't even acknowledge that early on. Um, you've been uh, you you've been you basically built at what it would be perceived as an in house uh, creative services group for Kimberly Clark. You know, I guess, it, is, there, is there any of that, I'm going to start on the easy side, is any of that been more fun than the other? I mean, like, as, as, a, as a journey for you? Yes, and, and, and to just to reiterate, the, the in-house offering at Kimberly-Clark was there before I got there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I, when, when I, when I was there, I, my, my focus was also, how does, it work, how does it move from a center in the U.S.-based offering to a more global, scaled offering, and what does it look like? For me, that was, it was unbelievably exciting because what it allowed me to do was travel around the world, uh, really think about culturally at a 75,000 person company, how do you grow and scale marketing and branding across multiple types of products in multiple types of industries on, uh, you know, 170 plus countries. So for me, trying to figure that puzzle out, um, figuring out what does that global partner look like, understanding how that comes to life was to me, one of the most exciting moments of my life. Maybe it's because it's the most recent and you have something that's more recent. It, it sticks out more than others, but I think that was, that was really, really, really special. You know, I'd love to get your take is from the, from the less about the kind of operational and hard side of it. Uh, who has more fun, the agencies or consulting firms? It's not even a question. Are the consultants as boring as people? Is it a stereotype or, or is it just some firms, do you think? I think it's really the approach of the, of the consulting firm, right? Okay. Like, like I, when, I, when, I, when I show up, I'm wearing the same black T-shirt, black jeans. You know, my flair is the sneakers on my feet. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm much more relaxed. I'm much more 
inclusive. I'm much more thinking about how we're going to actually dig in and get something done, what the creative vision is, um, where a lot of times from a consultant perspective, they're worrying more about the flywheel. They're more, you know, they're, they're looking at it from a much more business school rigor type approach than the musician, artist, free spirit that's going to come um, and think about what's going to be culturally interesting for, for the, for the consumer. So agencies every day of the week. Yeah. I remember uh, hearing a story from who's another guest of ship at one point, Gaston Lagorbaru, uh, that when uh, he sold his agency to Sapient, who at the time was a really like hardcore, you know, uh, consulting firm, and that they had kind of loosened up at this one point where people finally started wearing, which was wild for them, kind of like jeans and, you know, uh, and crazy. yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 exactly. Crazy stuff. And, and it's, it's, you know, kind of you know, button down shirt kind of stuff and ditch the jackets and the ties. Um, and, then, and then basically that was all good until they had like, they had one bad quarter of like revenue and the CEO is like, everyone's putting khakis back on in the suit. <laughs> it was like, it was clearly the genes that tore down our culture. <laughs> so, exactly. So, Business so, casual, you know? Yeah, exactly. Oof. So, so let's, uh, let's jump a little bit um, more to the, the client side for a second. What do you think is the key to building great, long-term client relationships? I think it's the, really what, what, what's keeping them up at night. So if you look at understanding their business objectives, understanding what's going to keep them relevant in the marketplace, I think that's so hard. I think there's been such a long history of traditional advertising and marketing where people are like, okay, we're going to sell them a TV spot and then we're going to go stay at shutters and shoot, you know, in exotic locations. And we're going to do post in London. And like, that's where people were really getting, you know, building those relationships. Cause you were on the, you were on, you were on production, you were on the ground, you were basically living with these people. Now it's, you know, that's not as important anymore. Right. Like that, 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 I mean, I'm not going to call it fluff, but it was like, that excitement is no longer the important piece. The important piece is how are you bringing them something that they didn't even know that they needed? Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I've spoken to my team about this. We, uh, we're, we're doing it at Envoy is, you know, what are those innovation days? So once a quarter, mm-hmm. you know, we're not charging them. It's not, you know, it's, it's free of charge. And it's, we're doing, you know, nights and weekends and extra work to invest in innovative thinking for how our clients can approach the problems that we're seeing that they might just be sniffing or they're hearing rumblings about, but don't actually understand what it means. So they hear about the metaverse, they hear about Web3, they hear about blockchain, they hear about mid-journey, they hear about all these different innovative things that they might read about, but they don't really understand what the long-term impact is. It's our responsibility to come to them with ways that they can connect with that and use that to change their internal businesses, right? Like if that's the key. Why, why do you think uh, when you, when people are looking at bringing, building in-house town and obviously uh, different you know, company organizations have a lot of very clever people on the inside, why should people look to an outside uh, expert versus an internal expert. Um, what, what do you think are the key the key benefits there? That's funny. I, I've had this conversation almost daily. I think what you have is, and, and I brought this up before, it's diversity of thought. It's diversity of talent. Um, what you have are people that are thinking about multiple different industries, multiple different products, and they have a very diverse approach to how they're solving problems. Um, a lot of times when you're internal, you're so focused on what that brand or company is. Um, you're very deep and knowledgeable of what they actually have to offer that it sometimes makes them blind to everything else that's happening in the world. I remember I was working um, with the Cosmopolitan of Las Vegas uh, and we were having this conversation and someone brought up, well, the Bellagio is doing X, Y, and Z. And you know, the CMO at the time She's like, Lisa Marchese is her name. She's like, that's not our competition, right? So then, the, you know, then we had a really deep conversation. It's like the, co- the, the competition is Banksy. The competition is what's happening out in the world. 
you're building a brand that you want people to talk about. You want it to be culturally relevant. You want to give them something of value. You want them to feel cool associating with, right? Mm -hmm. You're not really competing with the hotel next door because then, Mm -hmm. then you're on that, you're on a different playing field versus changing the way that people think and feel about Mm -hmm. your brand and product. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a key piece. Yeah. Can both you and I have sat on both the professional services side and been CMOs and, and been on, on the brand side uh, multiple times. And so the inverse to this that I sometimes experience is that you, uh, when, it, when working with external professional services firms, which again, I've been on both sides of this coin, you know, you, they, they sometimes have a very narrow view of, of maybe one specific discipline or one specific expertise you know that I, I find that you know they're they're looking at through maybe their maybe through their function and they don't understand the full like operations of the industry or, or the business, and and so I, I'd love to just get, kind of get your reaction to when when someone has that kind of negative perception of the professional services world, is there a counter to that or is it more about rewiring how you think about the whole relationship if that makes sense. Yeah, it's it's more it's more about rewiring the relationship. It's more about that services group being, you know, putting putting the rigor in and being focused on really understanding the holistic needs of what those of what those clients are asking for. Even if they just come to you for a website or um, uh, we do executive business center like full engaging build outs of digital installations for you know Fortune fifty clients. Even at that level, really understanding what the business need is, because you, every single touch point needs to be laddering it up to those business goals and the brand goals and the brief that you're, you're you're giving out. I mean, you asked me a question earlier about like my oh shit moment, and I'm gonna mm-hmm. I'm gonna drop it on you right now if that's yeah, okay. bring it, bring guess, it, because because it's because it's, it's pretty rel- it's, it's 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 relatively um, connected to this ask. Early in my career, I was. Director of production uh, at Tribal DDB, we talked about that. And my my client was Anheuser Busch and Budweiser. Uh, we actually did the "What's Up" campaign that people today have no idea what that is. Like I was in a Northwestern class and talking about that, and they had no idea. Anyway, um, the cultural we classics. How do these people forget? <laughs> I mean, I mean, people don't realize. Yeah, like that, that was. I mean, that was like the first. Uh, I think we got like we won like a a gold the first like gold pencil for like the what's up website that we did. Yeah, that was a moment. Digital build out. Yeah, I mean it was it was a moment. I remember a client called me and was like, uh, during there was a meme that was circling around for uh, with super friends all doing what's up, and the CMO called me and was like, you need to take that off the internet. I'm like, no, no, what? You're like, like you need to take that off the internet. I'm like, I'm like, no, no, you a you want this, and b we have no idea who made this. Like this is the best. Like you, you should be spending millions of dollars for these impressions and just yeah, let it go. Yeah. But that's. But anyway, we were we were celebrating the the what's up can't like success, and we go out to a bar in Chicago. I'm still relatively young, and they are you know they order a round, and dummy orders a Guinness. Okay. And this Anheuser Busch was not associated with Guinness at this time. It was like in the '90s, and all of the Budweisers come in one Guinness, and the clients are all like, "Who ordered the Guinness?" And I was like, "Oh my god, I didn't realize." Like, Knock it off the I table, throw it at the I bartender. I I so I, 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 I owned up. I, own, I owned up to it. I'm like, I did. They're like, "Oh, cool, you like Guinness?" And I was like, "Oh shit." So they then, for the rest of the night, they must have ordered 20 rounds. Every time they ordered a round, they ordered one Guinness. So they're like, and that Guinness had to be drunk. Um, I know you're not supposed to haze clients anymore, but um, this was back when hazing was, I guess, fine. And I drank about 20 pints of Guinness. I mean, I, I mean, after the fifth one, I'm like, this is not going to be okay. No, be. Um, yeah. So that taught me two things. One, <laughs> like, don't drink that much Guinness because it was brutal. But two, understand the mindset and the product. Like everything that you're doing when you're with this client or thinking about this client needs to be around their, yeah, around that you're brand yeah. and around that offering and seeing how it lives out in, in bars in the world and like, don't like like 
don't try to be cool and do something different. It was you, you got you. So, they, they, they want they people like real serious brand clients. They want you to you know drink their Kool Aid or in this case drink their Budweiser. Uh, but I think you know it's like you you gotta be gotta be all in on them. And they they remembered it, and you know what? They were actually very they were very kind about it. But it was a lesson for me to really think yeah. about like how, what you say and what you do, especially in a services industry, has a significant. Um, impact on your relationship yeah. and i mean they, they continued I mean, the, the trust lasted. i still i still talk to uh, my clients still but um it was it was a, it was a life lesson it would be very hard to work for a company where you weren't didn't like their products um because you'd have to lie about it and uh, because they, they they want people that can lean in on them i can't imagine anyone ever working with someone who couldn't you know, say that they leaned in behind their product. Yeah, I want to go back to the conversation we we're having a minute ago about you know what 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 makes more sense, right? You know, the 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 third party subject matter expertise that comes with a professional services firm, the diversity of thought that comes along with that, and um, you know the the kind of insight that you can get versus building an internal team that has lots of accumulated knowledge, particularly uh, particularly over time of an industry and really understanding all the operational nuances of a business. And, 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 and this is a common uh, theme for me that I, I like to um, you know, put out there to the world. I feel like in our society or whether just a cultural norm, there seems to be this kind of desire for people to have binary points of view, this or that. You know, a lot of times, um, you know, when you look, especially at like market research and use market research to try and decide, does a consumer like this or that? And I don't think it is about these absolutes. I think it's about, you know, percentages, uh, a percentage mix, right? And so I think when, if you were a marketing leader out there and you are not on the, uh, on the, on the, uh, agency side, or even if you are on the agency side, thinking about how you can talk to your clients, I think telling them, the answer is not either or. It, it is you want a mix. You should design a team structure that gives you the best of both worlds. For anyone who's a sports you know, fan out there, or you know, it's like you you want you you need these complementary positions to get a really robust team. And I think you know, Jeff, you were totally spot on by saying you know the the, the diversity of thought that comes from professional services company. The fact that they tend to be specialists. I think when you when you go to um, you know a professional services firm, you get these uh, hyper functional people. It's very normal in a in a professional services firm, whether it be an agency or a consulting firm, to find someone who does one thing and they do it on a ton of costs, a ton of different industries. But then when you go on the client side or on the brand side, on the business side, you know you get this person who is the marketing manager or or you know the the regional director or whatever and they actually have to do a lot of functions but they're very 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 deep on that industry and that expertise and they obviously know how that business runs inside out and so i think if if people out there aren't building like a mix of these two things really strategically you're fundamentally doing it wrong so, you know, in-housing is, is something I have to be particularly passionate about because I do believe a lot of this expertise should reside uh, within inside the business, but it's, I'm not, I'm still not talking about absolutes, you know, and I think yeah. trying to find that is, is, is the, the right way. Any, any reaction to that out of interest? I agree. I, I don't think it's one way or the other. I think if you, if you go, if you go absolute, you're basically putting yourself in a box and you're, and you're taking yourself out of the game. Honestly, I think there's one additional area though, that also needs to be considered. And that is platforms. Um, and by that, I mean the Facebooks, the Twitters, the Reddits, the Googles, the Amazons, those platforms themselves have their own internal teams as well. And those internal teams are part of their ecosystem to help brands as well as helping agencies really mm -hmm. understand how to use them. This is something that, you know, I've been talking about since, you know, the early 2000s in regard to what does the internet need for brands and able to deliver brands. Back then, agencies as well as, 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 well as brands were really only thinking about TV spots. It was really the only thing you can manipulate is, are you doing a funny TV spot? Are you doing a cut down of a spot? Are you doing a serious, like, is it uh, an infomercial? Like that's how they were thinking about it. And it was very, they were very, 
small nuances to those changes. Now, the question is, where is your target? Where is your guest? Where is your consumer? And how are you showing up there, right? You can't just put your TV spot or a print ad on Facebook. You need to build something that's going to build engagement. The same thing goes for Reddit. The same thing goes for Twitter or Google. How you're showing up on those is significant. And the brands need to think about what do the relationships with those platforms look like? How does how that differentiate from the relationships with your agencies and really figuring out how strategically what you're using those teams for and what those and how those internal those internal teams need to almost be guides to understand how to work within each. They shouldn't be doing everything themselves. They should be figuring out how to tap into this person um, from this platform and this person from the agency. And if you have relationships with production companies, how does that how does that come into fruition as well? Very insightful. And I want to pick your pick your brain on a slightly different direction. What what about uh, you know you again you've been we've mentioned multiple times you've been brand side particularly your time with Kimberly Clark working on that side of the equation now going back to the, the agency and consulting firm side of the equation again what's the yeah. biggest thing you learned about the agency client relationship or like did that change your perspective I'm I'm assuming it did I'd love to know if that you know how that changed the dynamic for you it did in the in the case where it's for me one of the hardest pieces. On both sides, and I, I always thought it was it was it was it was hard on the agency side, um, but I didn't realize how hard it was on the brand side too. Is is working with like a procurement team and trying to figure out what that relationship looks like because you spend so much time negotiating costs, rate cards, hours, who the team is, all of these different pieces that could be spent, you know, more focused on. What is the what is the 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 thing that needs to be actually developed, right? And I think there's a disproportionate amount of time and focus given in those conversations because a lot of times these large companies think about service organizations and agencies and consultants as commodities and treating them the same way that they negotiate to buy their metal to make their machinery or paper cups for the bathroom, right? Like they think it can just be put up for bid, you go, you know, you go up for the, the lowest bidder and you try to figure out how to, how you're, how you're adding value. Right. And I think those conversations need to drastically change uh, where you're able to actually purchase based on thinking and creative prowess and team members and not treat quote unquote resources that you're getting from these partnerships as cogs in a machine. And a lot of times they, that does happen and it causes significant issues across the board because then you, you get sold in something that actually can't deliver on the brief that's at hand because you went with a cheaper decision or you cut hours that needed to actually have you know more focus on it. Do you, do you feel like there's uh, respect issues that sometimes kind of exist in that in that dynamic? And and how, have you seen that change over the years, or do you think it's you know, still working the same way? Respect in regards to the the brands respecting the agencies, mm-hmm. I do. I think, uh, uh, like I, I look and see how CMOS bring in agencies, and it's really a relationship business. Right at that level, once you once you have these longstanding relationships, it builds trust, and that trust builds respect because people are able to deliver and deliver and deliver. The unfortunate piece is that you know, with the life of a CMO at these agencies, I don't. What's the number now? Is it like nine months? It's like it's like it's like something crazy. It's like you know. Nine months or twelve months or thirteen months with people. I didn't realize it was around. that bad. It's crazy. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's not. Maybe it's not. I mean, maybe I'm exaggerating, but it's it's short. And what ends up happening, and this is this is you know what I witnessed and what I felt is that we would build rapport and trust with a partner or a client, um, and then they move on to a different job or they bring somebody new, and then the trust is immediately wiped away because those people weren't in the trenches with the team that worked on it. 
And then now you need to rebuild that trust. And what that looks like a lot of times is another RFP, right? It's an RFP that's going out and, and you're basically getting compared to all the other experts that are out there and you have to start from scratch, yeah. right? And I think that's, you know, having trust with partners is, is probably the most important thing. It's, it's you know, it, you, you, a lot of professional services firms, they kind of fall into a couple of different categories. So you've got, you know, I, I think some firms where they are able to provide um, inexpensive labor uh, or at, at scale. So they create depth. And so I think in those kind of relationships where it can be commoditized, I think the, the uh, relationship can be, I hate saying this, but can be a little abusive at times. Uh, in the sense that I, you know, once I went, I don't know, I don't, I don't know, I don't, I don't know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so I've, uh, you know, as, when I started doing CMO roles about nine, nine years ago, after being on the agency side for, uh, for for quite a while, it was it was very interesting to me to see how people inside the the, the business would talk about the agency and a lot of you know, kind of like. Uh, moments where it'd be like, oh, it's Thursday and like something hadn't been done. They're like, it's okay. We'll just have the agency do it. We'll give it to them on Friday morning. And it made all these kind of weekend uh, weekend rules that I had experienced in earlier parts of my career make sense. I think the flip to that, and, and this would be some advice for anyone that's building a professional services firm out there. I think if, when you're hyper-specialized and you're at the higher end of the market, you, you know, you're a very, very, very valued resource and I think the respect equation changes uh, a lot uh, because, you know, one of the things I've noticed, at least in the last you know, seven years since we've been uh, doing Chameleon Collective, you know, a lot of the type of work we do is like bringing in these really, really, really pedigreed uh, leaders who've you know, been the CMO of this or the chief digital officer of that or the VP or SVP of this. And, and we're brought in, and this is another example where I think bringing in a third party is useful you know, they, they're brought in to, to um, you know, provide that, that, that external point of view that may be hard to say internally. You know, I think, and we didn't really touch on this before, but I think there are conversations, and this, this actually idea is interwoven with a lot of the things we touched on. There are conversations that are sometimes very hard to have with inside a business. There are cultural implications. There is, frankly, political co- implications. And sometimes you're just too close to the business. And this go, you know, and so having someone that can come in and be that expert point of view is essential. And those kind of people, I find, uh, tend to be very respected and, and uh, put it nicely, not messed with very much, uh, you know, uh, by, by by the business side. So um, it's just a very interesting and, and different dynamic. I think earlier in my career, mm. I felt and saw that abuse from clients, whether it's screaming, whether it's you know, do it again, late night work, no respect for weekends, no respect for holidays. I think there has been dynamically a change across the board that to me, that's now fewer and far between than it has been in the past. I still think there is that late night, you got to get this done by tomorrow, or I don't care that it's the Thanksgiving weekend or what is Christmas between Christmas and New Year's. Is that actually a thing? Like you got to be working. Mm-hmm. I think that still sometimes exists, but almost all of those are around actual events or deliverables that have specific dates, right? So it's, you need to get something built and delivered for CES. Guess what? CES is the week after New Year's. So mm-hmm. get prepared for that, right? Mm-hmm. It's, you know, Black Friday. If you're, if you're, if you're a CPG or you're, you're a digital product or you're selling something online, you better have everything laddering up to that, right? Yeah. So it's it's understanding that and preparing for it so you're not surprised, right? And the good service companies are able to do that. But what's the saying? It's like you have quality, time, money, like mm-hmm. choose two, right? Yeah. Right? And you always want quality as number one, right? Yeah. yeah. Almost all the teams that I've been part of, quality was always one. So the question is time and money. And, yeah, and the first and good or cheap and good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah very few people are like, uh, well, I guess first and cheap has its place, but uh, but yeah, not exactly. So, a, a final question for you: uh, if if you were talking to someone today, and I'm not necessarily talking about you know, people coming out of school, maybe it's someone who 
uh, been in the industry 10 years, they've got expertise, maybe they've worked for someone else on the professional services firm world, or maybe they've been brand side for most of their career. And they came out today and they said, I want to start a professional service firm. I'm going to get together with some, some experts, you know, the other, other experts I like working with. What would be your number one bit of advice for them? <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's, it's really, I would say the number one piece of advice is really figure out what your differentiator is mm-hmm. because that there's so much competition out in the marketplace right now. I think what you have is the big behemoths, right? I think you have, you have the, the Accentures that's going out buying the greatest agencies out in the world. And then you have a lot of these small one-off independent service companies that are trying to make it on their own, but they need to differentiate from the other, you know, 50 to 100 that are out there, right? So when you have a service offering, making sure you're very specific and that it's different than all the other ones out there, because then it's going to just come down to relationships, right? If you have a client, that's one thing. If you have a great sales team, that's another. But if you don't have a differentiator, it's almost impossible to get that work. I love that you you brought this up. Uh, I'm going to actually uh, just kind of give, I've got a, a bit of a rant on, on this subject. So I think uh, differentiating in the professional service space, to your point, is extremely hard. Okay, look, if you if you go out there, whether you're a marketing services shop, your consulting firm, and you have an expertise, we talked about this kind of functional expertise versus industry expertise earlier. And if you have a functional expertise, someone says, I do you know, uh, uh, business analysis, where it's business consulting, stra- marketing strategy, brand strategy, you, you, there's only so many ways you can say that. So I personally think it's almost impossible to differentiate uh, on, a, on a service level. What I think you can do is differentiate on how you do it. So your, your method or your approach or your, in our, let's say, community collectors world or organizational design, you know, the, the how becomes super important. That's an area you can differentiate around. Your why you can differentiate around. Some people, you know, do things because, you know, letting, letting, some people will lean into letting their passions come through. Other people may, you know, have some big social issue they're connected to. So the why becomes super interesting. And then I would argue that the, you could differentiate around speed. So the when, so to speak, I think that's an interesting one as well. But the, the, the biggest thing that I would recommend to people, and it doesn't matter what service you're in, you're only as good as your portfolio. And so, uh, you know, that could be a, your body of work is everything. Think of your, you're an artist, you know, it doesn't have to be a creative thing. Your body of work defines who you are. And so when everyone else says, I do this, this, and this, well, they're like, well, let me see it. And, and so, you know, if you're building a new business in the beginning uh, and you're trying to attract clients to convince people, unless it's a personal relationship, to convince people to work with you is exponentially harder when your body of good or your body of work is either not demonstrable or not documented well, or frankly, just not very good in general. So, or, and so, you know, when you, you, there's like this leveling that happens that when you pick up a new, like big marquee brand or business or a great marquee project that gives you bragging rights, well, now you're someone that does that kind of work. And so anytime you get a chance to effectively level up, even if it's not profitable and potentially even loss making, uh-huh. do it. Because it's like you're, you're like buying that right to be to the next level. And then when you do it, document the hell out of it. If, if you can't talk about it, it isn't valuable. <laughs> and so if a client says to you, yeah, they're going to level you up, but you're not allowed to talk about the work at all. It's actually not that valuable to you. Uh, and so, so you need to be able to, you know, kind of say, yeah, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a company that does this now. And then once you have that, and this is so important, no one can ever take that away from you. Uh, so you, you know, the body of work is everything. Uh, that's why, you know, even in your career, you know, I think if you get an opportunity to be a, uh, you know, something on the professional services side or something on the business side, and you can do it for at least a year or two to document that you were successful at it, that levels you up. And, and you always want to, you always want to have that because that, that's that credibility you're building. So that's my two cents there for, for what it's worth. Yeah. And I mean, I, I agree. I mean, that's the key when you, when you, when, if you're starting something, having 
the business partner partners and yourself able to talk about it. So you could say, you know, the ECD who ran Nike or X for Beats or worked at Google or did this at Apple, right? Like that work, even if it's not from that specific services firm, the person that you're using, that you're working with is key and core to everything, mm-hmm. right? So I think, and that's, and, and that, that's your differentiator, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're not a cog, you're not a cog in a machine at that point. Mm-hmm. It's an actual talented person who's either strategic or creative or has the technical prowess and understanding of, of how to deliver. That's key. Love it. Great place to end uh, this week, Jeff. Again, we could have had this chat for 10 hours. Uh, how do people find you if they want to learn more about you or, or follow you on socials? I'm on LinkedIn. So it's Jeff Brecker on LinkedIn. Or you can follow me on Twitter at uh, Breck Daddy. Um, that's a nice. whole other story, how I got that name, which is <laughs> was created. That was an AOL messenger name from like 1997 that just turned into Twitter when I got on Twitter yeah. like 2007 it's uh, it's, uh, it's, it's the, uh, my, my embarrassing old username I used to be like under Solo which I think was a reference to Han Solo to sure. connect back to your reference earlier <laughs> uh, and I think my DJ name was Mother and that's another awkward one but my all time personal favorite was one of my colleagues we found out that his email address was uh, partyboy1983 at what mentioned what service and we never ever let him live it down. So your Breck Daddy's not that bad, Jeff. Don't worry. Okay. All right. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, I'd like to thank everyone uh, who's tuned in uh, today and in the past for Oship. Thank you again for tuning in every week. Uh, we really enjoy getting to have amazing guests like Jeff on. You know, the best thing you can do to support the show is give us a like, follow, uh, follow or subscribe, or even share it on your socials. Uh, we hope you enjoy uh, you know, every week of O-Ship and really hope you enjoyed uh, this week chatting with Jeff. Uh, Jeff, thank you again for being on O-Ship. That was great fun. Uh, look forward to having the next one over a Guinness, apparently. And, uh, Never we'll again. <laughs> you're, that's, you're done. So Budweiser only. <laughs> yeah, smart. Take care, everyone. See you next week on O-Ship. Bye-bye. The O-Ship Show is brought to you by Chameleon Collective, where we lead, scale, and adapt to build and grow great companies. You can learn more at chameleoncollective.com. Freddie will see you next time when we will once again be raising the sales for the O-Ship Show.